Hello and welcome to another episode of Explore Expert Conversations, brought to you by Anywhere Real Estate. Our show features discussions with leaders across the Anywhere brands and the industry at large, featuring high-level advice for brokers, agents, and investors worldwide. I'm Matthew Ferrara, philosopher, speaker, and real estate industry expert, and today I'm excited to listen in with you on another wonderful conversation featuring industry leaders discussing the ongoing fight for fair housing. Get ready to be inspired by this panel as it explores the progress and challenges that have defined the landscape of fair housing for decades. This is an episode you won't want to miss. And if you want more information or to get involved further with fair housing issues, we encourage you to reach out to us or any of the panelists on today's program. Thank you for listening to Explore Expert Conversations, where we provide you with access to insights and resources from across the industry to grow and evolve your business. Now let's join the conversation. Welcome to Segregated by Design, an event commemorating Fair Housing Month in support of Realogy's continued advocacy for equal access to home ownership. My name is Yvonne Furneaux, and I am the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Realogy. I'm honored to be your host. Up first, we're bringing you a screening of the animated short film Segregated by Design, which was originally released in 2019. This film is based on the groundbreaking book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And after the screening, stay tuned for a dynamic discussion about the film, its core concepts, and the continued fight for fair housing with two amazing guest speakers. First, our staunch ally and fair housing advocate, M. Ryan Gorman, CEO of Coldwell Banker, and Dr. Jacob W. Faber, an NYU professor of sociology and public service who has dedicated his scholarship to systemic inequality. I'll say I've seen this film several times now and every time I'm shocked by these stories and my eyes are opened that much wider to our forgotten history. But before I move to introducing our panelists, I want to thank filmmaker Mark Lopez and the crew at Silkworm Studios, both for creating this amazing film and for making it accessible to anyone for free. Mark sent us the file of the film for us to use for our event, and we couldn't be more grateful for his support. To learn more about the film and to share it with others, please visit segregatedbydesign.com. And now I'd like to introduce you to our two panelists. First up, one of our top leaders at Realogy, M. Ryan Gorman. Ryan is the Chief Executive Officer of Coldwell Banker Real Estate, a global leader in the real estate industry. Welcome, Ryan. And next up is Dr. Jacob W. Faber, Associate Professor of Sociology and Public Service at New York University's Robert F. Wagner School of Public Service. He also holds a joint appointment in NYU's Sociology Department. His research and teaching focus on spatial inequality and his scholarship highlights the rapidly changing roles of numerous institutional actors, including mortgage lenders and real estate agents, in facilitating the reproduction of racial and spatial inequality. Welcome, Professor Faber. It's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. So you both have such incredible resumes. I can't wait to get into this conversation. I'm so honored to be in this discussion with you. So why don't we talk about the film? <laughs> First, I have to just say that that film to me is just so incredibly powerful, again, no matter how many times I watch it. And what struck me most about the film was this stark reminder that these actions related to segregation and unfair housing practices in this country are not in our past, but they continue to impact our society in the present. 
And a lot of the things that we hear about didn't happen years ago, but they actually happened in our lifetimes and certainly in the lifetimes of our parents and grandparents for those of us who have been in the U.S. for generations. So these are events oftentimes also that took place in our own backyards. I live in Chicago and there's a long story in the film about something that happened in Chicago. So that's what moved me. I want to know what moved you most of watching the film? What was your aha moment in watching this? Ryan, let's start with you. I've seen the film many times as well. My answer would have been different probably yesterday than it is today, actually. Even just hearing you mention how it hits home makes me think about one aspect that talked about the children and grandchildren continuing to benefit from or not being able to benefit from, essentially, the ability to be able to own a home. The single greatest wealth creator in this country really is the ownership of a home. That's not, I'm biased, I'm in the housing industry, but that's just empirical fact. And that accretion, in, even in the past year, the increase in home value I think the number that was quoted uh, a few weeks ago was about $55,000 just last year alone, which is more than the average person makes in a year. That benefit only flowed to homeowners last year. As I think about my grandmother, who unfortunately you know, has been in, in good health her entire life, I shared this story with some folks a couple of weeks ago. She is in somewhat failing health and had to uh, receive considerably more health care than she previously had. Her children, including my father, are currently selling her home, coal bankers selling her home. She's under contract in record time, of course, for more than her asking price. And all of that benefit is flowing to her as a homeowner. Now, rewind, she and my grandfather bought a home in what was originally called Levittown, New Jersey. It's now called Willingboro. They were permitted to buy a home at that time. Many groups of people, including African-Americans at the time, and I believe that for that particular deed restriction, I think Jewish residents were not permitted to buy a home there. Her health care for the next two years, even though it's very expensive, will be completely covered by the equity value of the home that was only made possible by the color of her skin. Absolutely. And some people may be hearing about Levittown just for the first time in this film. And there's so much to be learned from the history simply of that one community. But Professor Faber, what was your aha moment in watching this film? I think similar to Ryan, you know, our proximity to this is really important to highlight. You know, if you had a relative who bought property in the middle of the 20th century, there's a very good chance that they signed a document agreeing to racism. And if you own a property now in a white neighborhood, you're directly financially benefiting from the legacy of these segregationist policies. And so part of your wealth is contingent on this uh, this racist ideology. And of course, the opposite is true for owning a property and community of color. I've been reflecting today on the title of the event here, and I really appreciate the word fight because this has always been a fight and continues to be one. And as the documentary showed, you know, the most important arena in which this fight takes place is in politics and policy. And their very powerful resistance to upending these structures that perpetuate inequality. And a lot of that unfortunately comes from the, the real estate industry, which again has this vested financial interest in the status quo and is fighting hard against fair housing efforts. Unfortunately, today, you know, the real estate industry has donated more to Republican candidates than Democratic candidates and every election cycle since 1994 and giving $22 million to Trump in 2020. And in this organization as well, you know, Realogy employees in 2020 gave Trump almost $300,000 and $173,000 to the RNC. And the Realogy PAC has made donations to several 
members of Congress who are problematic for a number of reasons. So I'm really glad that we're starting this conversation, but it's really important to identify the recalcitrants to understand where the combatants are in this fight. That's great. Thanks, Professor Faber. I appreciate your blunt honesty in this discussion. I mean, that's the type of conversation we need to be having in order to understand what it is we need to do as an industry to actually make a difference in this space. So I know for you that you've made these issues of housing and segregation and, and racial inequality your life's work in your academic studies. So I want to understand what has inspired you to take this path and what drives your continued passion in this space. I started my PhD in 2010, you know, the height of the foreclosure crisis. And so the housing boom and bust really impressed upon me, the centrality of, of housing to understanding racial inequality more broadly. The subprime boom in 2006, you know, Black and Latino borrowers making upwards of a quarter of a million dollars a year were more likely to get subprime loans than whites making $35,000 a year. And foreclosure crisis then leveled so many Black communities and undid a lot of the progress that happened since the Fair Housing Act. And segregation really played an enormous role in how that played out. More segregated places had more subprime lending and foreclosures because of how those places were excluded from opportunities to build equity historically in the ways that Richard Rothstein in the film and Ryan previously had mentioned. And that exclusion kind of creates contemporary vulnerability to predatory lending. Of course, all of this was intentionally constructed. As the video showed, you know, this is not an accident or the inevitable conclusion of market forces, but created through public policy. And in terms of what drives me, I think that this kind of understanding is really essential for thinking about a path forward. What does repair look like? Who's implicated and who's Kind of benefiting from and, and fighting to keep this system alive. What does repair look like, Professor Faber? <laughs> I mean, if he, he, you bring it up. What, what does repair look like? It's a good question. And, you know, I, honestly, I don't know. I think that repair kind of necessarily has to come in a number of different forms. Thinking about Ryan's family story is a quite common one where folks who bought homes in the middle of the last century, it was hard to not accrue wealth during that period. And so there you know, has to be an account for the fact that this financial instrument that, again, has become the you know, primary driver for wealth accumulation for most Americans was segregated. And it was constructed by the federal government through the financial instrument of the long-term fixed payment mortgage. And so Richard Rothstein makes a constitutional case to undoing this. I think that there's additionally a kind of moral case to a redistribution of wealth, which reparations is a term that people use. And I think that there are a number of ways that reparations could really work well. There's a kind of geographic aspect to this too that has to do with investing in historically disenfranchised communities due to redlining and some of these other practices. And Ivana, I have a hypothesis on the answer to the question that Dr. Faber Rose raised and you, you posed. I mean, that if we believe, and I'll say I believe, that home ownership is a net good, there are people who debate that, and I am not among the people who debate that. If we believe home ownership is a net good for individuals, for families, for communities, then we also have been definitive as a nation. No one really debates this. No, no one I'm aware of really debates that home ownership should not be 
determined by the color of your skin, your religion, your place of origin, your family's background, right? So as a country, we've decided essentially those two things. As a nation, we've invested heavily in the secondary market infrastructure and the tax laws and everything else to try and foster homeownership. And we've decided for, well, 100 years before the Fair Housing Act, it was illegal to discriminate the way the Fair Housing Act made it even more clear it's illegal to discriminate. But as a country, we've decided that those two things are not true. That means then, I think the scoreboard, the ultimate accounting is home ownership when analyzed by race, essentially. Also by religion, though the differences are much less now than, than they are by race, home ownership evaluated by race. Until we get to a place of near parity, then we have not reached the place where we need to be, right? So if we actually decide that that is the scoreboard, those two things are true as a nation, we hold these truths to be self-evident. These two things, home ownership is a net good and it should not be determined by race, then ultimately something nearing parity. Now, what Professor Faber proposed there in terms of wealth redistribution is a path towards that. There are many different paths toward that, and that's where the debate starts to break down among many different lines. But if we actually agree that's the scoreboard, that will drive our actions in a very different way than our actions have been driven over the past, uh, say, 50 years since the Fair Housing Act. Absolutely. So, Ryan, I'll just segue to you. I mean, you're clearly passionate about this topic and passionate about removing barriers to fair housing, eliminating discrimination and advancing equal opportunity because you believe so strongly in the power of homeownership. I know you've even spoken before the New York State Senate on these issues. So what originally inspired you to take action? knowledge, frankly, education. I mean, even that that New York State Senate moment, was there was a moment in that hearing where one of the senators who was very angry about some of what uh, he perceived as discrimination that was taking place on Long Island at the time, and much of it actually was terrible, what was what was taking place, and he was venting his anger at me, he said, do you even know, do you even understand the history here on Long Island of housing discrimination? And of course, I had a vague notion of Levittown and the racist destructions that were referred to in the film, as well as Professor Faber. But I really didn't know. So then I went on a journey of discovery, largely reading, oftentimes conversations with those who knew far more than I did about the topic. And having read now, I can't even tell you how many books and scholarly articles and some professors work and others. It's every additional item you read, like this film, hopefully drove the same reaction for people. It seems so horrendously unfair. Like it violates every tenant of, of what everyone would consider the kind of fair that we learn in nursery school that for me, it just drives a sense of desire for action because much of what we learn is, as the film made clear, this is not happenstance. It is not a natural result of anything. It is actually a created and intentional path. And, and only some of the stories were shared in the film. You know, I recommend books to people all the time. I'm glad this film exists because people are much more likely to spend 20 minutes watching a film than they were, you know, will to spend 20 days reading a book. Once you educate yourself on what the reality is, how different that reality is from the sort of paragraph in your history textbook that quickly covered the topic and how you see it playing out today. I mean, I think it would drive almost anyone to action and to want to show up at your township meeting, to engage in, in industry for it if you're within this industry, to ask questions about a highway widening project or a new approval for an incineration plant or what, like, wait a second, has this is this in the same place that these other things have taken place? Wait, do we do we take into account how things are going to impact the the community? And you start to see the footprints of the past show up in the present, and you can really engage to do something about that. Absolutely. So, Professor Faber, I want to throw it back to you. I mean, the film largely focuses on segregation related to Black Americans, and we know that Black Americans historically have been marginalized, but many other racial, ethnic, religious 
gender cultural communities have also been impacted by biased or discriminatory housing practices. So can you talk a little bit about how other demographic groups from Asians and Latinos to the Muslim, Jewish and LBGTQ plus communities have also been impacted in terms of fair housing? Sure. So as your question kind of implied, historically, all of these groups have faced explicit and, and implicit discrimination. The first housing segregation ordinance was passed in San Francisco and targeted against Chinese families. Appraisers who made the Hulk redlining maps that Richard Rothstein referred to noted the presence of Latino residents as a reason for giving neighborhoods those bad grades. And as Ryan mentioned earlier, you know, Jewish families were also commonly barred from property ownership through restrictive covenants. One of the more interesting results of this history of housing is how it consolidated what we think of as the white identity today through suburbanization. So a hundred years ago, there were many European immigrant groups that were actively and explicitly discriminated against, the Irish, Italians, Jews, Greeks, and they were considered not white enough or not white at all by some. But David Rodiger, who studied this history, has argued that this housing policy, by kind of pulling people out of ethnically isolated city communities into more racially homogenous but ethnically diverse suburban neighborhoods kind of consolidated this white identity. And today, you know, this is an active area of research, including some uh, work that I've done showing that single mothers are discriminated against in real estate searches, though only Black and Latinx single mothers seem to be discriminated against. White single mothers do not. Another place where this fight for fair housing is going on is around what is called source of income discrimination. So discrimination against people who receive housing subsidies like the Housing Choice Voucher or Section 8 program. There are a number of states and cities that have passed anti-discrimination laws to prevent that kind of discrimination. Unfortunately, they don't seem to be terribly effective, but given the history of and persistence of racial discrimination, you know, that was outlawed 50 years ago, and we still see quite a bit of, of remnants of that practice. Ryan, Professor Faber brings up a lot of really great facts that a lot of those point back to our own industry. So, what responsibility do we have as a company, as a leader in the real estate industry to make change here? And what can we do as individuals as well? I mean, our industry was and is complicit in much of the negative, much of the you know, causing some of what has been referred to here and is also and can be a force for very powerful good in every one of those areas, right? So I'll say that there's sort of daily activity as well as more technocratic activity. One of the points that Professor Faber just raised was the income discrimination, right? So someone has what is known as a Section 8 voucher, not even really called that anymore, but let's say they have the ability to receive federal offset for housing and a landlord discriminating against someone saying, you know, no Section 8 need apply, essentially, which is, to the point is illegal in some places, not in others. Well, a landlord or a member of the real estate industry in general might point to that and say, you know what, the federal government requires certain things of Section 8 landlords that is not something that I want to do, requires certain things physically of the property, et cetera. And so I'm not discriminating for income purposes. I'm not discriminating against the person. I'm discriminating against the program because it requires something of me that I don't know. Again, if our goal is for people to be able to live wherever they need to live or to own if they want to own, 
Now we might approach that differently and say, well, I understand why the safety and security of the home in that voucher program was a top priority for the federal government at one point in time, but it appears to be working against the goals of the program. So what are some of the things that we can do to address that? When some of that Section 235 program under FHA was originally passed, it was a program specifically designed to help people be able to step into home ownership with no money down if we really go back. And it became, unfortunately, a way for people who owned properties that really no one would want to buy to sell to a community that only had one path to home ownership. And that was a community that was leveraging like FHA's old 235 program. So it became homes that really just didn't even have functioning plumbing, that had holes in the roof, that had foundational issues, were then sold for sometimes two, three, four hundred percent more than what they were just purchased for to people in this program. I mention these things because I say the industry understands how these things function in practice. The industry sees them in real life, not just sort of in the bill in the state house when it's being written or on Capitol Hill. The industry can be a very active force in not just, of course, understanding fair housing, always living up to the letter and spirit of fair housing law in your own activity, but then also raising where you see issues, where you see opportunities to be able to put forth potential solutions that are workable, that actually can get traction, that can potentially move forward and become enforceable law. We, of course, need to move way past relying solely on law. We really need everyone to embrace and live the spirit of what we're talking about here. But there are changes that can be made to actually facilitate people being able to live where they need to live for their families, for their work, for their commute, and also for people to be able to own where they want to own. Many people will point to seemingly legitimate reasons why something exists, and they may believe it and they may have meant it, right? Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle may have passed legislation that they truly believe was making things better. But it's stacked on top of other existing realities and other rules and whatnot that leads to a persistence of a home ownership rate for the most disadvantaged communities, especially black communities today, being the same as it was when the Fair Housing Act was passed, which is insane. So obviously, we are not making progress toward the goal we need to make progress toward. We as an industry can fully participate in helping that to get done, not just in our daily work, but also in how we can assist those who are doing the legislative work as well. Professor Faber, you called us out a little bit earlier, but I want to know what you think is our responsibility as a company and as an industry to move us to a better place. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And I'm an educator, and so I believe that knowledge can be a really powerful tool. And it sounds like for Ryan, it certainly was for me. It absolutely has been. The research, unfortunately, on on the like effectiveness of things like diversity trainings is not that promising. Workshops and webinars of which I participate in plenty tend to not be enough to change people's behavior. And so that leads to a necessity of accountability. And one way to get there is through data collection. So the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, for example, passed in the late 70s, I believe, requires mortgage lenders to submit data to the federal government on every mortgage applicant that they receive. And the point there is to shine some light on practices that had kind of historically been explicitly discriminatory. So there's a kind of framework that already exists on the federal level for that kind of data collection in the housing industry. More recently, Iceland, interestingly, passed legislation that now requires employers to prove that they don't discriminate against women in terms of income. You know, we have these housing audits, research on housing discrimination. I was just this morning reading another new paper. They're coming out every other month or so, and they are consistently showing discrimination based on race and ethnicity and the other sociodemographic characteristics that you mentioned earlier. So 
why are we putting the burden of proof for determining or identifying discrimination on the potential victims of discrimination. I think it would be much more effective to compel potential discriminators to prove that they don't, again, through data collection. And this would be a non-trivial lift, certainly. But again, the framework is already there in legislation. And I've been in conversation with some members of the New York State Senate as well to pass legislation to require real estate agents to collect data on who they meet with and what properties they show folks and what happens, if any, in terms of a transaction. I see you nodding, Ryan. Any any response to that? That's interesting. I mean, the reference to the UMDA data as referred to the mortgage application data is always people who get to that point, right, of the actual mortgage origination. And some of what the professor is proposing is something that's, I'll say, a funnel from that or prior to that, the kind of thing that it could be quite enlightening. You know, frankly, we don't have a lot of information. I mean, Yvonne and I have had this conversation when when we look at some of our own information, it's self-reported information for who the individuals are with whom we're working, who the agents are that we're supporting, or who the, the consumers are that they're supporting. It's not the easiest thing to try to get. Now, if there were a mechanism to be able to do that or a requirement to be able to do that, then it would potentially change things pretty dramatically. For me, I, I go back to the the work is not done until the result is what we want, right? So if we actually can collectively, I think perhaps even politically, we would have an easier time agreeing on the goal and we do the tactics to achieve the goal. But if we can even just agree to the goal, that would be a great point. I mean, everyone will readily agree we should not discriminate, right? So there's not many politicians who will stand up and say, I think discrimination is great. We should do more of that, right? They'll all say, absolutely, of course. Of course, I believe in the principles of all of those things, yet their execution path is pretty markedly different. So the professor called out some sides of the aisle, sort of Democrat and Republican, and I understand why. There are individuals on both sides of the aisle, frankly, who could do vastly more to understand the issue and to be able to put forth potential solutions that comport with their view of how they think regulatory framework should work, of how they think government should work. And there's obviously a big diversity of opinion on that. But there are some things that are hard to not agree with. And I don't think we're really fully exploiting those right now. There are certain things, if we, again, agree on the goal, there are certain proposals where it's sort of, you have to work pretty hard to figure out why that would be a bad thing to do. Yet we're, for the most part, I think, either not paying enough attention to the issue or wasting a lot of time and attention on distractions to the issue, as opposed to just staring some of the data in the face, like the, the professor acknowledges, the home ownership rate should not be 30 percentage points different nationally, 40 or 50 percentage points different for certain communities based solely upon race and really excluding all their factors. The quote that you gave a second ago, or at the beginning of this, uh, professor, with it was people were equally likely, if you're a person of color with a quarter million dollar income, to receive a, a, a subprime loan as someone who was not a person of color and had a $35,000 a year income. I mean, that, I understand that's a real statistic that you put out there, but it's mind-blowing in and of itself. Yeah, and Professor Faber, going back to another point you made, I really appreciate your calling out of diversity training not always being the most effective way to foster change. My team has heard me say several times, like, we need to look at the systems that have gotten us to where we are. And that often means challenging the status quo of the way things have always been done before, because the reality is, like you said, that things are working the way they were designed to work. It was intentionally designed in such a way to create the inequities that we have today. So that means we have to rethink the system entirely. And that can be everything from an internal system to something, the industry. I love that you said that because that to me is what drives my work more than sending people through a webinar or through training, right? Although I do believe events like this can really get people thinking on a deeper level, which I really strongly appreciate too. So thank you for that. I have some questions and we have a couple of minutes. 
there's some discussion that some agents are not accepting offers from buyers with FHA or VA financing, and that this may be a form of discrimination. So can you talk a little bit about this practice of FHA and VA loans being viewed unfavorably by sellers? I can comment on that first, if you like. So it is a reality. Again, it goes back to some of the Section 8 point that I made. It is a reality that there are structural disadvantages to a seller in the context of certain loan types, including FHA and to a slightly lesser extent VA. Oftentimes, those loans are associated with low down payment, but they also require certain inspection elements to be true. So if you're a potential seller or you are a seller and you have two offers, one, an FHA loan that has a low cash down payment, which can mean that the potential buyer has a higher likelihood of not being able to follow through if something changes in their world, right? So for instance, a credit event or something of that nature, and it's FHA, so it requires a certain inspection with repair necessary prior to closing. And then you have another that is a cash offer. You compare those two things as a seller, it is very difficult to put the onus of that decision on a potential seller, especially when, as we know, with most transactions, the seller is also a buyer utilizing the equity from the home they own to acquire the home they want to own. They can have the best of intentions. My brother, for instance, was only able to win in this incredibly competitive market with a VA loan, frankly, because it was a veteran who saw that he was a veteran making that sale to him and wanted to do something for a veteran, bring a VA loan to the table. That's what it requires. And I don't think we can rely upon the largesse of of all sellers to sort of fix the problems that we have. So that isn't one of those areas where we should be looking at some of the structural impediments of the assistance provided, good reasons for the inspections, but are they actually harming more than they're helping? Those are some of the questions we can ask ourselves with some of these programs. Yeah, I would just add that I agree with Ryan. And as far as I know, it's completely legal to discriminate against people based on where they got their mortgage from, at least on the federal level. I would love to be corrected on that, but that's my understanding. It's interesting, especially in the context of the documentary that we just watched, what has happened to FHA and and VA loans that when they were first created in the 1930s and 1940s, mortgages that were insured by these programs were much cheaper than those that were available in the private market. And they are largely responsible for creating the American homeownership society that we have today, that this kind of became the pathway to a middle-class life with upward mobility. It's a shame that this incredibly effective, discriminatory certainly, but extremely effective program has deteriorated in competitiveness. I want to take these last few minutes for each of you to share one thing, one takeaway that you hope our audience will wake up tomorrow and think about after this discussion. What do you want people to walk away with today? Ryan, I'll start with you. I would say grab the link to this video and share it. Whenever this topic comes up, just quickly text it to someone, email someone. I mean, raising the level of awareness and education is really, really important. And then I would say engage in whatever. Not everyone who's joining this is sort of part of the real estate community. I'm glad we opened it up you know, more broadly. So there may be people who are not actually interacting every day. But my recommendation to them would be different than my recommendation to the general community. But I would say take this education, this understanding and the questions it generates for you to your township zoning meeting, to the local variance debate, to the proposed regulation locally around how your town or city is going to comply with the affordable housing requirements in your state. Is that being proposed as a, a total concentration of affordable housing in one area of town versus another? What's that look like? like? These are the kinds of questions that can be extremely uncomfortable, can make it seem as though you're attacking the people who are making the decisions, 
But if you can find a way to raise them, then I suspect, as I have, as I've gotten engaged in a number of these things, you'll be somewhat disappointed with the answers that you hear. You'll be somewhat disappointed with the lack of awareness and education of the people making the decisions as to what actually drove the legacy that they've inherited and the framework that they have for the decisions that they're making. So whether it's at the city planning level or your individual work with uh, potential home buyers and sellers, if you're educating yourself and asking these questions, different outcomes will emerge. And you could be responsible. You literally could be responsible for changing the outcomes for your township, for dozens, hundreds, thousands of families in your area so that two generations from now, they will be able to pay for health care for their grandmother and not have to burden the second and third generation with that cost, which could then make it impossible for those generations to become homeowners in the first place. I mean, you can change the world. So I'd love for people to take that carry away. I love that advice, Ryan. And we focus so much on the national political landscape, often these local decisions that are making an impact directly on us, on our homes, on our communities, on our neighbors. And think about the thousands of uncontested positions that are going in your local government, mm-hmm. you know, and committee meetings happening with nobody in attendance. And those are the, the meetings and the folks who are making these types of decisions that are impacting the integration of our communities and the wealth of generations to come. So I love that advice, Ryan. Professor Faber, two minutes. What's your takeaway that you want folks to remember tomorrow? Well, to be honest, I couldn't agree with Ryan more and and you as well, Yvonne. I think that the two things that I would promote or ask people to do are the exact same ones that, that Ryan did. There's so much that we as a nation really need to unlearn and kind of replace with an actual history. You know, Richard Rothstein's Color of Law is a great place to start. This video is extremely well produced and consumable. It's a great start. The book is also worth investing in. If I can make two other book recommendations, I recommend Race for Profit by Kianga Yamada Taylor. She's a sociologist at Princeton and, and Jessica Traunstein has written a book that shares the name Segregated by Design. She's a political scientist and, and that book is also fantastic and there's enough overlapping insights there. And then again, in agreement with Ryan and Yvonne, no matter where you live, there is something to get involved in, whether that's electoral concerns, as, as Yvonne mentioned, kind of running yourself or getting participating in, a, in local political action. There's community organizations. There are just an infinite number of ways to get involved in your community. And again, I strongly agree with, if, if with Yvonne that you know a lot of the focus, and this is my focus as well, is on the federal level, but there's so much important work and decisions being made on the state and local level. Thank you. Thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. We also have a number of industry partners that put out great reports on the state of homeownership for the Hispanic community, the Black community, et cetera. I'd encourage everyone to go do your own research with those industry partners as well. The LGBTQ Real Estate Alliance is another one. Check out their annual reports to learn about the state of fair housing for each of these groups as well at a national level. And to learn more about the film today, please, again, check out segregatedbydesign.com. And you can share the film and even donate to the creators of the film. Thank you again, Ryan and Professor Faber. This has been great. Well, that's all for this episode. I hope this program brought you some insights and understanding into the ongoing challenges facing fair housing today. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and tell others to subscribe too. We also encourage you to rate the show and leave us a review. I'm Matthew Ferrara, and this has been Explore Expert Conversations from Anywhere Real Estate, bringing you access to insights and resources from across the industry to grow your business. 
Please join us again next time.